It's fitting that we had a baptism this morning, especially with Kyra. Kyra told me earlier, uh, well, last Sunday and then this Sunday again, that she does not like getting up in front of people. I think I've shared this before. Jerry Seinfeld said that uh, the number one fear is public speaking. The number two is death, which means that the majority of people would rather be the one in the coffin than the one giving the eulogy. (laughs) But Kyra was afraid, and yet she was courageous this morning. Courageous to get up and to honor her Lord and Savior and say, I'm His. In front of all of you watching, saying, I belong to Jesus. What a tremendous proclamation of courage and faith. And that's what we see today in the story of Joshua. We are picking up in our Fish Stories and Flannel Boards sermon series with this, story, this sermon that we started several weeks ago called One Courageous Son of a Nun. Now, of course, Joshua, who was the son of Nun, N-U-N, that's where we derive this title, And we were looking at lessons from the story of Joshua and his leadership. Now, we looked at the first lesson a few weeks ago, and it was lessons about faith from Joshua's life. And and, and what we said there, basically, just as a way of summary and review, was that when we talk of courage and faith, we can distinguish between the two. They're related, no doubt, and to call for one is to call for the other. In order to have courage, you must have faith. But they are different. You'll remember we read from Joshua 1 last week where multiple times God calls Joshua to be strong and courageous. Now, the the basis for that call is God's presence, right? I will be with you. I will go with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. So God's presence is the basis for our courage and faith. But when God calls Joshua to be strong and courageous, he is most certainly calling Joshua to faith. But whereas faith is a quality, courage is an outcome. Faith is the substance, courage is the result. When faith acts out, courage is the result. And so if we desire to be courageous, then we must have a foundation of faith on which to build our courage. And so what I kind of came to last week was when we act courageously without faith, we are foolhardy, right? You can run into a burning house, but unless you do it for the glory of God and faith to faith in God, um, I, I guess it can be courage, right? To save the life of another person, But what if there's nobody in there? What if you just run in a burning house for no good reason, right? That's dumb. And courage without faith is dumb. Because courage means you're putting something at risk. Sometimes your life at risk. And and what if the, the net of God's grace isn't there to catch you when everything falls apart? What if your act of courage doesn't end in you living through that act and you have no faith, no salvation, 
It's going to be a long eternity for you. And so all of our courage must be on the basis, on the foundation of faith. But when we have faith, we can be courageous, right? We can be courageous because we trust in a great big God who will walk through a, with us through any situation. So that was just a review of lessons about faith from Joshua's life. So let us continue today with the lessons from Achan's sin of hypocrisy and lessons from Joshua's choice in making the covenant with Gibeon. There's a story told, and I don't think it's a true story, but it made me giggle, so I'm going to share it with you. The story is told of a zoo that was noted for their great collection of different animals, a wide variety of different types of animals. And one day, the gorilla at the zoo died. But to keep the appearance of a full range of animals, everyone loves to come to the zoo and see the gorilla, the zookeeper hired a man to wear a gorilla suit and sit in the cage and act like a gorilla while people came by to gawk. What was his first day on the job? The man didn't know how to act like a gorilla very well. And as he tried to move convincingly, he got too close to the wall of the enclosure and tripped and fell into the lion exhibit. And as any of us would do, he began to scream like a little girl. Convinced his life was over, he screamed and screamed until the lion came over and spoke to him and said, be quiet, you're going to get us both fired. Let me ask you a question today, church. Are we a church full of believers displaying the heart of Christ? Or are we just a bunch of dressed up hypocrites monkeying around it being Christians. This morning, are we merely dressed up or are we sold out? Well, that takes us into our second lesson or next string of lessons from the book of Joshua. Lessons about hypocrisy from Achan's sin. Lessons about hypocrisy from Achan's sin. Would you turn to Joshua chapter 6? I won't have it up here today, but you can turn in your Bibles or on your devices. Joshua chapter 6, verses 16 through 17, and then chapter 7, verse 1. So you'll remember in chapter 6, we have the fall of Jericho, right? The Israelites have been brought out of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years or 38 years technically. And uh, because of lack of faith, right? 12 spies went in. They all came out. 10 of them said, there's no way. We can't beat them. Joshua and Caleb said, absolutely. We can take the land. But because of the lack of faith that these 10 spies displayed and the people along with them, they had to wander in the desert for almost 40 years years. Finally, finally, they get to come to the border of Canaan and cross over and go and take the promised land that God had promised to them all the way back to Abraham. 
God gives Joshua these crazy orders to march around uh, Jericho, sorry, for seven days. Six days, they march around at one time. On the seventh day, they march around at seven time, seven times. And on the seventh time, they screamed, they blew the trumpets, and the walls came a-tumbling down, right? And the walls came a-tumbling down. You remember that song? Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Sing it with me. Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came a-tumbling down. Ooh, that's good. That's what happened. God tore down the walls. Now, here's the thing. God had given them some commands in, in what to do as he gave them Jericho. As they entered into this first conquering of the people of Canaan, so to speak... God gives them a command, and we find this command in chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. Am I in the right place? Hold on. Is that right? Okay, yes. Shout for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Did you hear that? Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Now here's the problem. Turn to chapter 7, verse 1. And I want you to see how the whole congregation is guilty by the sins of the one. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So what lessons do we learn about this hypocrisy? What happened? Well... God had told the people, listen, you're going to go in there, I'm going to give you victory, but don't take anything. Destroy everything. Don't take anything for yourself. Now, there would be later victories where God would allow them to take spoils of war. But in this first victory, God said, don't take anything for yourself. Everything is devoted to destruction. Everything is devoted to me. And yet this one man, Achan, took some of the spoils for himself and hid them in his tent. Now we find in verses 10 through 26 where Joshua confronts Achan. Why? 
Well, because they, the people, go up against Ai to fight them, just a, a small number of people. In fact, the, the spies who go into Ai to, to check things out, to see what they're going to need to defeat these people, says, hey, just send a few thousand people. We don't need very many. They're small. They're going to be easy to beat. Just send a few thousand in. But the people of Ai handedly de- defeat Israel. And Joshua's like, God, what in the world, man? You just said this is ours. You said you were going to give us the victory. The rest of Canaan, they're going, to, they're going to make fun of us. They're going to think you're not on our side anymore. They're going to come against us. They're going to defeat us. And God said, get up. What are you doing on the ground? Why do you think I haven't done this? So here's God saying to Joshua, listen, I'm not a liar. You're calling me a liar. I'm not a liar. Here's the thing, man. You should know if it didn't work. It's not my problem. It's yours. I'm not the one who messed up. You all did. Joshua should have known immediately that there was something wrong amongst his people because God is never at fault. But the first lesson I think we learn here from the hypocrisy of Achan is this. Devote everything you are and everything you have to the Lord. If Achan would have known this truth, if Achan would have practiced this Submission to God, this, this act of submission where he said, I am yours, what I have is yours, God, everything is yours. It would have saved the people of Israel, it would have saved Achan a lot of trouble. And here's the thing about hypocrisy, churches. We, every Sunday, maybe multiple times throughout the week, we sing things like, all I have is yours, all I am is yours, God. We sing words such as, I surrender All, you are God alone. All I need is you. You are my all in all. And those are lovely things to say and sing. But are they true? Now, none of us are perfect. Before we get into this issue of hypocrisy, I just have to say up front, none of us are perfect. So, of course, to a degree... These words that we sing in these songs are ideals that we are hoping to attain to, and we realize that we don't do them perfectly. And that doesn't make us altogether hypocrites. Although to a degree, we are all hypocrites, even if unintentionally. And let's just own that this morning, right? When, when you hear people on the outside say, well, I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites, you go, yeah, of course it is, because we're all imperfect. It's not an accusation, it's just the truth. We are hypocrites to a degree because we aren't perfect, yet most of us, if not all of us in here today, we do love God and we really do want to serve Jesus, amen? We want to. That's our heart. And, and it, 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 it gets me that the, the world uses that as a reason not to go to church, and yet they're still getting married, they're still having children, they're still entering into relationships. And here's the thing, if hypocrisy kept them from being a part of that which hypocrites were involved in, they wouldn't do anything in the world, right? They wouldn't work because there are hypocrites in the workplace, they wouldn't be in relationships because there are definitely hypocrites in relationships. I mean, I mean, in here, how many husbands or wives who absolutely love their spouse and more than not do the right thing at times don't act in a perfectly loving way towards their spouse? Amen? 
You know what that's called? It's called hypocrisy. Because you stood before uh, maybe a preacher or a judge, you stood before a crowd perhaps, and you promised to love them in sickness and in health till death do us part. And yet there are times when we don't love each other that well. We want to, we desire to, and we do most of the time. Or parents, you love your kids, right? Have you ever done anything that wasn't in perfect love? Amen. Both my kids are gone today, so I can, I can act like I don't, uh, this doesn't apply to me. Uh, I do want to give out a shout out to my daughter who is on her way to Florida and who didn't take me. Now who's not loving very well? <laughs> or how many of us in here haven't honored our, mo- our mother and or our father perfectly? <clears throat> yeah. We want to. We love them. But we just aren't perfect, guys. So to a degree, all of us are a little bit hypocritical. Maybe not intentionally, but here we are. Being imperfect doesn't make us all doesn't make us all out hypocrites. It just means that we aren't perfect. But there are those, like the majority of the Pharisees in Jesus' time, who give lip service to God, but do not honor them with their hearts and lives. There's there's no change of heart. I, I was just reading in Matthew 3 this morning. I knew we were going to have a baptism today. So I went to Matthew, or uh, yes, Matthew chapter 3, where John the Baptist is baptizing people at the Jordan River. Of course, then Jesus comes down to be baptized. And right before Jesus is baptized, it tells us that the Pharisees and Sadducees came down to the river to check out what was going on. And this is what John said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees and every tree therefore that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you know what he was telling them? They weren't fruit bearers. They weren't legitimate children of Abraham, not according to faith and righteousness. And therefore, if their heart didn't change, they were going to get cut down and thrown into the fire. Or as Jesus says of these religious leaders in Matthew 15, 4, where he was quoting from Isaiah 29, 13, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Those are people who are dressed up but not sold out, right? They wore all the things that the Bible tell them to, told them to wear, the cords and the, the gown and, and, and all the stuff. They, they looked pretty, but on the inside they were dead. They were hypocrites. And our intentions, which must lead us to actions should be to devote everything to the Lord and give Him final say over everything we do with everything we have and everything we are. Now, again, I told you that God told him in this circumstance with 
with Jericho to devote everything to him. And I said that there were later battles that they won where God let them keep the spoils of war. But I think in this first one, God often asks us for our first to show whether or not he can trust us with the rest. And that was happening here. Will you give me the first? And if you do, I know I can trust you with the rest. Right? Is that how we live our lives? God, you get the first and the best. Because that's what he deserves if he doesn't ask for it, which he does ask for it. Whether he asks for it or not, it is what he deserves of our lives, of our time, of our energy, of our money, of everything we have. Now again, I told you, I'm one of those imperfect hypocrites. I preach this stuff, and it's truth, and it's how we ought to live, but I don't do it perfectly. And so today we're just honest, right? We just repent together and say, God, help us be better. Help us do this better each and every day. Help us give you the first so that you'll know you can trust us with the rest. Now, God knows. This is not something that he goes, oh, I didn't know before, but now I do know, obviously. But now the people of Israel knew that God was serious about this matter. Because you can't hide anything from God. That's the next lesson we learn. Achan couldn't, and we can't. Achan had it hidden in his tent where he thought no one else knew, and yet God knew, right? Joshua 7, verse 1, the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Why? For Achan had taken some of the devoted things. God knew. Nothing is hidden from God. We can't fake God out or distract Him or make Him look the other way. God always knows. He knows our hearts. He knows our intentions, our motives. And usually those things come to light. For Achan, everything on the outside looked good, but the inside, and I mean that literally, on the inside of his tent, there was sin being covered up. There were the clear marks of disobedience. And though Achan was able to hide it from his family and neighbors, he was not able to hide it from God. My friends, God knows everything. How foolish we are when we think we can hide things from him. Or perhaps we think, you know what? God will forgive me. God will forgive me. God will have grace and mercy. I just need to hide it from everyone else. And yes, God is a God of grace and mercy. If you come to him in confession and repentance in faith, he will forgive indeed. But keeping our sin stashed away with the plan of retrieving it whenever it tickles our fancy is not repentance. It's not faith and it will not yield true forgiveness and freedom from that sin. You know what happened to Achan? Achan died. Achan lost his life along with his family. God wiped him off the face of this earth, literally. Now, will God do that to us? Probably not. It probably won't be that um, direct. But what about our effectiveness in the kingdom? What about our ability to impact others for Christ? All those things are at risk if we try to hide our sin from God. 
And it didn't just cost Aiken, it cost the entire nation. Church, our sin affects others. We think we're hiding it. We think we've got it covered up. We think it's not hurting anyone else, right? I'm not hurting anybody else. I'm telling you, it is. Because the lack of effectiveness you'll have for the gospel is impacting others, right? The impact that you might have had on somebody is now at risk. And maybe their life is is less because you tried to hide your sin. At some point, hypocrisy and deception will come back to bite you. All right, let's move to our last series of lessons here from the book of Joshua. There's one more story that I want to point out. Now, obviously, there's several, several narratives throughout the book of Joshua. But I picked these three narratives, the fall of Jericho and the courage of faith that we saw in Joshua's life leading to his leadership, the sin of Achan and the hypocrisy that we learned from there. And the last lesson or series of lessons or the last narrative that I think we can learn from in Joshua, or at least that I want to point out today, is lessons about making choices from the covenant with Gibeon. In Joshua chapter 9, we have this story of the Gibeonites' deception. Now, the Gibeonites were a people in the land of Canaan, one of the people groups that God had called the Israel to displace and conquer. And yet, Joshua makes a covenant with these very people. Now, we're going to look at why that was such a big deal in just a little bit. Well, I'll just tell you now, and then we'll read it later. Joshua, the people of Israel, were not supposed to make any covenants, no agreements, no deals with the people of Canaan, right? They were supposed to destroy them, eradicate them, or at least remove them from the land, because this was the land that God was going to give them. And, and this wasn't just God being mean or insensitive, right? God knew that if any of these people remained, it, it would risk the Israelites' faithfulness to him. They would turn to the gods of other people. And that's what we see. We see them intermarrying with these people, turning to their pagan gods, committing idolatry because of it. And, and God said, they got to go. They have to go. Well, Gideon comes to Joshua under disguise. They deceive Joshua. They tell him they're travelers from a far off place. They put on some torn up clothes, some torn up shoes. They say, see, these all were new when we left, but we've been on the road for so long and it's been such an arduous journey that, that that everything's tore up. You can see how far we've come. And Joshua doesn't inquire of the Lord. He doesn't pray about it. He doesn't say, well, let me see what God has to say. He just says, yeah, we'll make a covenant with, for, with you. The covenant is that you won't hurt us. You won't destroy us. Not knowing that these are neighbors of theirs, just down the road, the Gibeonites. So the first lesson that I think we see from this, or the first lesson I want us to take note of is this. We must always inquire of the Lord. Now, I get this word, inquire, ask, go to God, get his opinion from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. And there, David has just become king of Israel, and now the Philistines are coming out to fight him. 
And so it says there that David inquired of the Lord, God, what do you want me to do? What's our strategy here? How do I approach this? And the first time God said, go and fight them, I'll give you the victory. So David and his army go out, they defeat the Philistines, the Philistines flee, they retreat, except that a little while later they come back. And so instead of just assuming that God's plans would be the same, David, it says David inquired of the Lord again, and this time God said, don't go and meet them immediately. Hide behind the balsam trees and watch for me. And when you see me rustling at the top of the balsam trees, you'll know that I've gone ahead of you to defeat your foe. And after that, come out. And so David with his army waited. They saw God go before them. And then they attacked. And, da- and God gave them the victory once again. David inquired of the Lord at each and every step. For each and every decision, God, what do you want me to do? That's how we must make every decision we make. Now, God doesn't always answer when we want, how we want, as fast as we want, in the way that we want. Amen? And, and, and a lot of his answers are here for us already. You know, we'll sometimes ask questions of God that he's like, I've already answered that in here. You don't have to ask me. In fact, I've kind of already said no. It's like my kids asking me a question when they already know the answer. But we must ask. We must turn to his word. We must seek his counsel. The next thing I would say is learn what you can, okay? You go and you ask and you don't get an answer. God, what do I do? So what do you do? You start collecting all the information you can. Because sometimes God just says, just make a good decision. Sometimes he doesn't put the writing on the wall. He says, I've given you a brain. I've given you my word. I've given you my spirit. Now just make a good decision. And so we take all the variables that we can get a hold of into account, we gather our information, we learn what we can, and then we make the best decision we can. And we trust God's sovereignty to work through our imperfect decisions if it is imperfect. I would say this though, don't be hasty. Don't be hasty. That's what happened to Joshua. He was way too hasty here. Sure, yeah, let's, let's make a deal. Oh, oops. I didn't know. I didn't realize. I wasn't aware. And now it's too late. Don't be hasty in your choices. Don't be hasty in your relationships. And, and metaphorically speaking, Joshua jumped into bed with these people very quickly. And it was a really bad decision. And it had repercussions and consequences that would last for generations. Trust in God's sovereignty. When we're making choices, we have to trust in his sovereignty. Now, let me say this to you, because I know there's always the question, how does my free will work with God's sovereignty? Now, I just have to say from the get-go that I'm not crazy about that term free will. I'm not saying I don't believe in it. What I'm saying is I don't think there is any such such thing as true free will, right? Because free will is the ability to act and move without any outside interference. But we live in a world where there's always influences, right? There's always people who are pressing on us or situations that are pressing on us. You know, if somebody comes up to me and says, hey, do you want me to kick you in the shin? Now, I have a choice 
choice, right? A true choice to make there. But because I know how much it hurts to get kicked in the shin, I'm going to say no. Right? And that's an outside influence. The knowledge of future pain will keep me from making certain decisions. Fear is an influence. Worry is an influence. Knowledge is an influence. So so I don't like the word free will because we're not truly free in the sense of freedom to make those decisions. I like the word volition. I like the word volition or free agents. Because we have the ability to make real choices on a day-to-day basis. Good choices, bad choices. And Joshua had the choice here, right? God didn't swoop down and say, nope, don't make that choice. He let him make a bad decision. Now, we serve a Romans 8.28 God, right? Who can work all things for the good for those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And this is where the sovereignty of God is the basis for our freedom and volition, because we trust his sovereignty. We gather all the information. We, we know as much as we can. We find out as much as we can. We pray to God. We seek his counsel. And then we make the best decision we know to make in the moment. And we say, God, I'm imperfect. This decision may be imperfect, but I trust you to work through it. And that's how we don't get paralyzed and too scared to make decisions, right? Because we can become paralyzed in the moment and we don't make any decisions. And God has called us to be a decisive people in faith. After we've gathered the information, after we've prayed about it, after we've sought his counsel in faith, we act and we trust him to work through it. Now, if he tells us what to do, we do that. If he doesn't tell us what to do, then we make the best decision based on his word and his spirit and grace. Be a person of your word. This is what I love about this. Even though it came back to bite Joshua, Joshua didn't go back. Now, if you ask me, I think Joshua had every right to say, hold on a second, Gibeonites. You guys did this under false pretenses, so I don't have to keep my part of the bargain here. You lied, so... I can break this commitment. But Joshua didn't do that. He was a man of his word. He was a man of integrity. He made this commitment, and even after he found out that it was made on false pretenses, he kept his word anyway. And he made this covenant with a people group of Canaan, just as God had told him not to. In Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2, I told you we'd get here. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Listen to this. You shall make, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. And yet that's exactly what happens here. And even though the covenant was made on false pretenses, Joshua kept his word. And here it is, the lies of others didn't lessen Joshua's honesty. Just because other people are liars is never a justification for us to be. We must be a people of integrity. We must not be just dressed up. We must be sold out. The Prussian king Frederick the Great was widely known as an agnostic 
and he was known to not like Christians, to mistreat Christians. And yet, his most tr trusted general, General von Zeeland, was a devout Christian. Thus, it was that during a festive gathering, the king began to make lewd jokes about Christ until everyone in the room, except for General von Zeeland, was rocking with laughter. Finally, the general arose and addressed the king. Sir, you know I have not feared death. I have fought and won 38 battles for you. I am an old man. I shall soon have to go into the presence of one greater than you, the mighty God who saved me from my sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you are blaspheming. I salute you, sire, as an old man who loves his Savior on the edge of eternity. The place went silent. Of course, the king was caught off guard with a trembling voice. He said, I beg your pardon, I beg your pardon. But just as it was when Christ said, you without sin cast the first stone and the audience began to walk away slowly, the party members gradually, one by one, left. And soon there was no one left. The king had a choice that evening. I'm sorry, the general had a choice that evening. to wear the attire of what would fit in in the moment, to go along with the crowd, to be washed down the stream by the culture. And yet this man, at the risk of his own life, took a stand. And he showed himself not just to be some guy wearing a monkey suit. He was the real thing. Genuine, authentic, and it changed the tone of an entire crowd. Now, I don't know what happened. You don't hear in history how his stand made a difference in the lives of those people, but who knows but that it didn't at least get the king's attention and change the hearts of many people in the room that night. I'm telling you, my friends, it just takes one. One person not monkeying around with their Christianity to be sold out, to say, I'm his. Every decision I make, everything that I have, everything that I am belongs to you, oh God. My life, and if it's taken away in this world, so be it, because it will be yours in eternity. Oh church, one authentic believer taking a stand for love and mercy and grace and glory and holiness for Christ can change a generation. Oh, that you, that I, that we might be that one.